0: Hi
1: everyone and welcome to Leukemia Chatters, a podcast about blood cancer from Leukemia Care. This week, podcast regular Chris, a CML patient, spoke to ex-England
0: footballer Jeff Thomas. Jeff is also a CML patient and he was diagnosed at a time when stem cell transplants were the only options for CML patients. Here he talks about his experiences throughout his CML journey. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, I'm sat here, uh, with, uh, Jeff Thomas. Um, I've known Jeff for quite a few years now, um, because it, I don't know how long it is. Quite a while. It's gotta be 10 years. It's got to be. Because I did that walk with both of them and that's when we met when you bombed past us. Yes. I was about 19 stone at the what time. Was that, yeah, it's maybe a little bit more than. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's is it? scary, isn't it? Yeah. So, Jeff and I have both uh, had the same diagnosis in our lives uh, CML. Um, but uh, we're here to talk about Jeff today, his life, uh, his life story, what he's up to now, and uh, what he went through upon diagnosis. So, uh, Jeff, introduce yourself. You're good at this bit. Oh. Talk about the football. <laughs> well,
1: I was uh, late to football, uh, I never went to any apprenticeship or anything. Probably showed the way I played. Um, I got picked up um, by a manager who was renowned for bringing on youth through football, and Dario Grady at Crew Alexandra. And he spotted something in my abilities at 18, 19 year old that a lot of managers or a lot of scouts didn't see. And What was it? What do you think it was? I don't know. I think uh, tenacity, I, th- I think, because I, I was. I was as a eighteen, nineteen year old. If you are a, a better player than the rest that you you're playing against, you you do stand out. And I was, I saw myself as a tricky winger back then, a left winger, and I used to be, you know, you know, I was quick and and powerful, even though I was skinny. I was really, really skinny when I was a, a teenager. And I think he just thought I was, I was a raw talent, and he, he thought a bit of coaching there might be a player there. And after a year, he gave me the confidence saying, "There's a number of clubs coming in for you already, um, offering money." And for that, for people to be saying that to you after you've you, a year before you were just playing park football and going for a few pints with your mates after it, it, it just sort of made me reevaluate what. I could be doing with my life. I was an apprentice electrician at the time and just enjoying football at the weekend and as a pastime. Yeah. And but the dream of being a professional footballer, I so thought I'd gone. And I had an opportunity either of either doing the final exams to be a full-fledging electrician, which my dad was would have been proud of, uh, or be a footballer that probably the bottom level in professional football. Crew were languishing in the bottom of the old fourth division back then. And but there's a big turning point. They were going to Benidorm for the pre-season. So uh, Uh, that that was a winner. And it just made me sort of think, right, let's give
0: it a go. (laughs) So that was after 12 months, people started sniffing around. How long did you stay at Crew for? Two and a half years. And then Crystal Palace came in with a
1: a bid of £50,000 and believe me, back then, that was...
0: Serious money, wasn't
1: Serious, it? serious money for a, a, a player that was playing in, a, by now, a mid-fourth division thing. But alongside me were people like David Platt, who went on to Aston Villa for 75000 about six months later. That conveyor belt, that was the start of it. You know, um, people Rob, like Rob, Rob Jones. Jones was coming through, Craig Hignett, there was uh, Murphy, and it was just... Robbie Savage, the names are endless now that came through that system. And that was
0: down to their scouting system and just being aware. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's uh, down to the the focus was on youth.
0: So you were at Crystal Palace at this point?
1: Crystal Palace, I went there and I was filling the the shoes of a guy that was very um, popular with the fans, uh, Kevin Taylor. um, And few little first games there was was a few boos going out you know They've probably seen this young guy who didn't see much and then I scored a goal and it seemed to just sort of press a a, a switch that just allowed me to free up a little bit and started playing really well I got played a year that year we just finished short of the playoffs and then the year after we got promoted through the playoffs year after that I was by that time I was captain um, we got to the Wembley FA Cup final against Manchester United who were seven minutes away from actually lifting the cup against uh, a United side that was really at the, the start of their dominance really. mm-hmm. Alex Ferguson which was his first piece of silverware and that was it you know we, we had such a great side we finished third in the Premiership the year after but we, the club wasn't big enough to keep that side together so it's um,
0: Who were you playing alongside on that in that team?
1: Um, we we had the first million pound goalkeeper Nigel Martin and Andy Thorne, Eric Young who were both Wimbledon centre halves who beat Liverpool in the FA Cup final a couple of years before. Great players John Pemberton right back uh, Richard Shaw left back. I was in the middle with Andy Gray who went to Aston Villa had a great and Tottenham uh, great career. But up front the duels in the team were Mark Bright and Ian Wright, and uh, they were formidable as a pairing. What would and, they be worth
0: now? It's oh, ridiculous amount I of think money. Ian Wright would
1: probably still tell you he's probably worth about £300 million. Pounds, <laughs> you know. he's, he was never shy. But all that, all that squad were players that had come from similar backgrounds, not probably made it first time around, but even second time around. Wrighty he was um, ejected from about five or six London clubs. Even when he went down to Brighton, who weren't a top club at the time, said that you're too small, too weak. And again, Steve Coppel took a gamble on him. And just that confidence that he gave him, just, you know, his, his crew was
0: brilliant at Palace, but he, he did better things at Arsenal and his following club. And from a, from, a fa- from a football fan's perspective, it felt, whereas you had Wimbledon, which was the crazy gang, you all felt like a band of brothers. You were all in that together. And, and I think nowadays when you talk to Crystal Palace fans, that's how they feel of that era, that you were all of a similar ilk, can you just work for each other? It
1: is nice to be part of a, a period in the club where we're probably every team that comes along now. They, they put it alongside that our squad and they yeah. say which was better and we we still come out on top oh, just
0: that must just, be nice yeah I'm not surprised no I've got, I've got a few friends who are Crystal Palace fans and yeah, yeah they look at that era you know famous. they're
1: doing ever so well now and it's great to see they've got stability back in the ownership as well which was that was holding them back a little bit but now Steve Parrish and his team are behind the where the business all happens, the important part
0: is it's looking good for them now. Excellent. And at this time, you've got England call-ups as well.
1: Yeah, I played nine times, never got beat. And uh, my career is probably remembered. And uh, for a faux pas, more than anything, you know, I'd never scored. And my last, probably one of my last kicks for <laughs> in an England shirt was an attempted chip against France. And uh, it's... We've all done it. You know, but I did it on a stage where there was about 80,000 people there watching on a night and millions around, you know, watching it on TV. And there wasn't social media back then, but there was something called a Mary Whitehouse Experience on BBC2. Yeah. And I was just berated week in, week out by those guys. And it was it was good fun. My dad was very proud that my name was mentioned every week. <laughs> but I was going, I just wanted to shrink and hide. Because it was just being, uh, it was yeah, it was humour, and it, it took me a while to see that outside of the humour of it all, and uh, yeah, but it wasn't the worst thing that happened to me, that's for sure.
0: No, no, for sure, and we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, and then you left Crystal Palace at this point, and was it Wolves? You Wolves. I, I, I should have probably left. I probably stayed at Palace
1: a year too long. Okay. Um, in the grand scheme of things, when you look back, it's easy with hindsight. We had the players like Gareth Sarke coming through at Crystal Palace, some young, really good young players coming through. And Blackburn came in when they signed Alan Shearer, and they, were, they offered the same sort of money they offered Alan Shearer yeah, to get him signed. Um, £2.8 million, and they rejected it because he just released Ian Wright and a few others, and yeah. they just didn't want to get rid of me. And so I just, you know, I just decided, right? Stay loyal, but reminded, once you lose that, that sort of, I don't know, it's that little edge, and you you start questioning, the, should I push to, to get away? And then with Blackburn doing never so well, it
0: just sort of... Uh, did that unsettle you in that kind of It then, did a yeah? little
1: bit, yeah, it did, I can't hide the fact that
0: it did unsettle me for about six months of that season, and I did battle to get back. Because you hear it all the time in the media, don't you? That a player is unsettled and because yeah. of the transfer speculation. But yeah, it must,
1: um, it's, yeah, nineteen. It was nineteen ninety three. That it was a year where we got relegated. You know, a year where I sort of um, I was feeling a little bit. We should I have done the right thing in not pushing, but also I lost my father that year, and it was to to cancer. It was quick. It was six weeks, and it was intense, but. Yeah, I was still playing football. I remember, uh, you know, I used to sleep with my dad. The last my mum couldn't handle it. So people don't see that when you're playing football. You, you're almost 27, 28 at a time, and you just you, you're lying next to your dad every night. Then going and Steve Copper was great. He just let me just play games. And we're going twelve and Road, playing Leeds. We got a nil nil draw. I remember this like yesterday because it's it was a week he passed away. He got back and he was—he just asked how I went on. And that was it. It was probably his, his last words he ever said, really, because he was—he can't start again. To a point where he was, you know, Matt Miller nurse who'd been looking after him, they were brilliant. And it, they just, I think, he lasted two more days after them. What type of cancer was it? He had lung cancer, which I couldn't really understand because he would just smoke like a trooper. He never saw me that without a cigarette. You know, and he, he stopped smoking in about six weeks to before his end of his life you know and it's just it's it's one of those things you look at smoke and you think why the hell is it being allowed now when yeah. you see what I've seen and many many millions have seen but yeah. Uh, yeah. that's the world we live in
0: do you right. think like, moving across a little bit you were talking earlier on that you're vegan at the moment, and do you think those types not of not really, I'm not
1: that far, have you? Oh, but, ve- no, not that. I'm Sorry. a vegetarian. You're vegetarian, Sorry. okay, all right. Yeah.
0: But you've had, you, you've started to give up some of the dairy products and stuff. So you're very conscious of your of your health, aren't you? Do you think that's affected you in in the way that?
1: Yeah, I, I think we just. I think we. It's educating myself, really. I think, and it, then you, you've got a choice. And you either carry on doing what you want to do. I, to be honest. You asked me about a year ago, what's your best meal? I would have said, a lovely steak. You know, nice new potatoes and you know, all the garnishing and all that sort of thing. But now it's just, it, it's, um, well, I can eat a Sunday lunch without the meat and uh, onion gravy and it just tastes the same. I'm not missing that sort of little bit that's,
0: wow. You know,
1: and you look at the, the, the way don't know. I have to, it's a mate of mine. That's, he's been on me for about three or four years to get me to this point, and I don't want to turn into him. I'm <laughs> talking about it. So, he's, no, I just, I just had, uh, I just tell people that I don't eat meat anymore. I, I, I do have fish because I think fish have a chance. Fish have a, got yeah. a chance of getting away. Yeah. But when it's farmed, I'm, I'm against farming. And I have got this what I stand by now is if I can't kill it myself. I'm not going
0: to ask somebody else to kill it for me so I can eat it. So that's, that's a decent true. philosophy, yeah. So, um, you've obviously looked after yourself and you're still looking after yourself now. At mm. this point in your career, are you sort of winding up? You had some injuries kicking in and things like that, didn't you?
1: Um, I did. I had some at Wolves. I was doing really well. I went to Wolves uh, the year after the Blackburn deal fell through. And I went to Wolves because they were a very similar setup to Blackburn and would, they had the Haywood family there, and it would, he wanted to put back into the, the uh, city of Wolverhampton uh, uh, after it, he's made his wealth there. Yes. Um, pay back the people by delivering a, a, a top-flight football team. Unfortunately, I got injured about 10, 11 games into the season where everything was bubbling along nicely. New stadium, new players, the crowds were coming back, the houses were full again. And the atmosphere was fantastic, but it just sort of uh, petered out while I was there. At the same time, I had these injuries that just not not me back for nearly four years. What
0: was that is that a knee injury? I uh,
1: had two cruciate operations. which it was tough to take, but you know when you you felt that you were doing something, and you loved doing something again. It, the love of football was back, hundred percent again, and. Uh, it was just frustrating, but then it, it taught me so many things that period of just taking little steps, you know, not get too frustrated and make sure that you're strong enough when you come out of it. And when you're ready to go to be strong enough to, to take life full on again.
0: And Wolves looked Wolves looked after you at this.
1: Wolves were brilliant. And the, the Hayward Haywood family and everybody was you know the greats of Billy Wright were still there, you know, and having those people taught you and um be able to sort of bounce your feelings off them sort of people were, you know, were a bit special, you know. And um, uh, even that, when you're not on the pitch, you still learn. And that's what I did then, you know, um, and just look forward to the day I could get on the back on the pitch and play my part. And how long were you there for in the end at Wolves? I had a four-year contract and I got back perhaps only in the last six months where I felt I was, well I went back to where I was, it was a lot of hard work. Physio probably was sick to death of me. But um, yeah, and then there was there was a manager that came in, Mark McGee, We never hit it off really, and I think I was a little bit too boisterous for him. Really, old school as well. Yeah. I, I had too much to say in the dressing room, and things weren't. Can't ever bad. imagine that. <laughs> and there was a few, there was a few characters, there and it's it, we we found that we were, just fell short again. We got beat by Chris Palace actually in the playoffs in. I think we won the game at Molyneux two one, but we lost the first game in three you know three like one, and then um, then I went to Nottingham Forest and that, again two years there, but six seven months of that was blighted by another crucial operation. Right, well that was my fault. I played Chelsea, which has been promoted from the Championship, probably about ten games into the Premiership, went right into... A challenge with uh, the biggest goalkeeper at the time, Edgar Hoy, and then I came off second. And you never shied good.
0: away from challenges, did you? Let's be honest. No, oh, God.
1: That, that was my downfall. I think as I was getting older, I think I should have probably not gone in for some silly challenges that I probably was doing when I was about twenty. Right. But yeah, no, that's the way I played, and that's you know, and they uh, Dave it. Then took me. He was. He got released by Forrest and became manager of Barnsley. Took me up there. <laughs> a great year, but Barnes and we finished in the playoffs. Got to Wembley, sadly got beat by Ipswich. And it's and then I went back to Crew. Dario Gradi was still at Crew, wow, and eighteen years later. And he just said, "I've got a bunch of young kids coming through at the time, and when they win in the championship, then." And he said that they need somebody who's been there, done it. You don't have to play every game, but I just want you to be an influence in the dressing room. Went there absolutely loved my final year football. Played in the FA Cup, fourth round, on TV, scored a goal, and waiting for one of them silly challenges. Right at the end, it didn't need to, we were 4-1 up, and me knee just
0: went,
1: <sighs> and I just knew that was it. Just time to run my boobs. But
0: I was happy. Happy that I was it. Gosh. So how do you feel? What was the highlight of the career at that point? Highlight definitely was,
1: would have been beating Liverpool 4-3 at Villa Park in the FA Cup semi-final yeah. after they had absolutely demolished us 9-0 at Anfield that year. And nobody gave us a chance. <laughs> I don't think our manager give us a chance. He said we, he was quite happy. <laughs> we were only one 2 nil down at half-time. one nil down. Well, he did say that. He, we This stage of the season, we're fit enough. Yeah. we can we can physically outplay these if we were
0: in the game second half. And if we're right, and it turned out to be a classic, so yeah. fantastic. So we we're sort of closing our um, this part of your your career here. I've got to ask: um, during your career, you must have gone through a few medicals and blood tests and things like that. Any anything turn up on any of those at all? They were always all clear, were they? In terms of your yeah. blood counts and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was nothing. What and again, I, I think looking back, the
1: way they they do medicals now are totally different to what yeah what they do and what they did back then. I think it was my Wolves medical was a guy who probably stretched me leg, see if I could touch my toes, and and not much more really. I can't remember having any blood tests or anything at any. It, actually, there was when I went to Barnsley. Barnsley tried to sign me when they just got promoted to the Premiership probably two years before I went there, and they they did give me tests. But that that just showed up, a few scans just showed damage to my knees, which I could have told them before they put me in a scanner. And uh, they were just wary of outlaying some money to, to get me there. So that was the only negative I had from any medical. So, no,
0: nothing blood wise or anything like that because now we're seeing the likes of cardiomy at Wolves and you know standard blood tests happening yes, in
1: Petrov yes. found out
0: that way yeah, yeah it's, it's, I suppose that's a good thing we are being diagnosed better but at that time
1: better and earlier
0: yeah
1: which is always a help isn't it I think yes. any illness just, you've
0: got a better chance of you yeah. diagnosed early very much so. So you're retired. You're a retired footballer now. What 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 do you do when you've when you've left Crystal Palace? Well, uh, I, and- I had the biggest
1: fright when I got a, a serious knee injury at Wolves. So I invested in clothes shops when I was twenty-eight, twenty-nine, and ended up having about four clothes shops around the Midlands. Mailbox two in there. I had a shop in um, Mary Hill. What they called? Nichols, So was a part of. Right. And uh, then I had a a couple of standalone shops, Arm Bassett in Missouri, and Mailbox, and I was just always in, in, interested in fashion, but <laughs> stupidly I put money into retail, and I found myself people ringing me up saying I can't work tomorrow, and tomorrow is New Year's Day in Merry Hill. and so I found myself working New Year's Day and and things like that, and, and again, it's, it's lessons to be learned. and you see. I'd never go back into retail, not with me on money, but I loved part of it. The, the glamour part was going off to Milan and different places buying clothes.
0: I can see the attraction there, and yeah. I mean, it was
1: very, very good. I actually went to uh, was it was at Cavalli Roberto, Cavalli's 50th birthday, which was bizarre. So, where was that? That was uh, that would have been in uh, Milan, but that was going on to my next chapter. That was probably one of my first signs of what was ahead because um, I think it was one of the the big fashion houses put on like an afternoon of going in a health spa. They had their own health spa behind one of the big shops they had and I had a a lymphatic massage and then that night I thought for the first time I'm going to have to call an ambulance because I was in so much pain in my stomach, didn't know what it was. Well, I felt like there was a sponge inside my stomach. I could actually feel it sort of underneath its rib, sort of.
0: That was your spleen?
1: It was my spleen. I found out it was eight times too big. It was engorged with... Well, that I didn't find out because I just ignored it the day after I woke up feeling fine. I remember I put Gladiator on my laptop and I just fell asleep watching Gladiator.
0: And then that, I woke up feeling all right, just a bit tired, a bit. Because we're stupid blokes, aren't we, ultimately, with things like this? You know, it's like, yeah, there's something wrong, but yeah, I'll be all right. Tomorrow's another day. Everything's great with hindsight, isn't it? Because
1: every single symptom that's written now, I had night sweats, actually wet through, absolutely. Not just a sweat, it'd be absolutely, you know, I'd have to towel myself dry. I'd stand up and I was dripping. And then it was only Julie. My wife, who just was fed up with me moaning about this and the other, was getting fatigued, was losing weight. I was full time training and I never lost weight, you know, the way I was losing weight only a year before. And it was just, well, what's going on, you know, because I put on quite a bit of weight when I first finished and then just suddenly dropped off me. So there were all these signs there. And eventually, Julie just said, Right, you made an appointment for. The GP, nine o'clock in the morning, go there before going to work. And I did. And Frank Taylor, the name I won't forget, he's retired now, Frank. And he looked at my uh, folder and opened it. And there was one page in tonsillitis back in when I was 11 or something. So I don't go to the GP much. And I said, no, no, no need to. And he just, he, we had a bit of fun. And then he, he asked me questions, and then straight away he got a little bit serious. He said, right, okay, then. He felt my stomach. Just need some blood tests.
0: And do you think he knew at that point?
1: Yeah, he did know, yeah. He told me he did know. But And, and he said, oh, we'll get these back to you in maybe two weeks. And I think like many people I've met in the past, our stories are all very, very similar. He had a phone call saying, we need to see you straight away. And that was it. I was on this, I always look back now, it was like being put on a conveyor belt. uh, of Complete blurred memories for a while until you slap yourself and start listening to what needs to be done and how to focus your mind on how you're going to get through this and if you're going to get through it. Because I even accepted that because my girls were 10 and 7 at the time. I even accepted that, because um, my little leukemia back then, you, you do the thing, go on the internet, and you look at the prognosis and what's your outlook like, and the outlook for CML was, wasn't great. It was five years at best.
0: Did you know anything about it when they when told you? Nothing no. at all?
1: I, I got involved with, because my dad died of cancer. I got involved with Antony Nolan for some reason. They were at Nottingham Forest, and because I was captain there, I got all the players to turn out for an Antony Nolan uh, day of, you know, being swabbed. Or I think it was even pricks still giving the blood tests then. Yeah. Uh, a little prick in the thumb, and then your bloods would go off, and then you'd be on put on a database. So we all thought, felt great at that, and that's the only time I've been involved with any sort of blood cancer. Um, but didn't really look into it with any depth and and then when I was diagnosed it was my goodness and then I did, like I say I was looking at this time and then my first blood test my white blood cells were so high and they mentioned this accelerated word so I went on the accelerator. okay accelerator you in the accelerated phase you could only have three months to live and I was thinking and then the next day, I went to see this fantastic guy, Charlie Craddock, Professor Charlie Craddock, who was more nervous than I was seeing him because he'd never sort of treated a football player or a sports person before. And I, I laugh now, but he was he was all sweaty. He was He looked more ill than I did, <laughs> and uh, he just said to me, "Listen, you you're not in the accelerated phase." we're going to sort that out, we're putting on this machine. I was on it for about four four hours and it was just washing my blood out, getting rid of all these white blood cells and get me in a position where I could go home and start uh, uninterfering, putting the jab in my stomach every three hours, three four hours.
0: That's a bit brutal, isn't
1: it? It's not nice, it's not nice. It's, uh, but it just felt, I didn't, you know, I,
0: some people ask questions, don't they? I, I, I just put my faith into to these guys. And Charlie, because I've been under Charlie as well, Charlie Quaddock, yeah. and, and there's something about him that you do just put your faith in him, don't you?
1: Yeah. And in his team. You know, you don't get second chances with this thing, but if I did, I would ask questions a lot more now because I think by it's only by chance that I had one of the best people, in, in, not just in this country, but in the world, treated me.
0: Yeah, It's just
1: by my... Postcode more than anything. But I was in, it was, it's sad to say, but if I was living in somewhere like Stoke back then, perhaps the, the illness would have grabbed older me um, more and not been diagnosed or not treated the way I should have been treated. Because I, I know the fact that there, there was people in that area that passed away. Because of purely that, they didn't have the skill, yeah. So in that area, and, is, the, and, and many other places, but
0: there is a lottery. I mean, my my story is is the same. I went to one GP who sent me away with paracetamol. We've had other stories where people have been sent away to go and eat spinach and things like that. And unless you're a bit tenacious about it and go chasing the diagnosis down, you you. I mean, the worst can happen with those types of situations. Well, it, I mean,
1: and even today, we there's a, a lovely girl that. Gemma, thankfully, she diagnosed herself. Her GP kept on, like you, kept on sending her off and saying, there's nothing wrong with you, you've just got, you know, flu or something. And she noticed she was bruising easily. And there was a guy again who I saw the first day I was diagnosed, Dr. Shafiq. Lovely, one of the nicest guys you can meet. He is. And she... He actually lived a few doors down. Never met him before, but heard that he was a hematologist. She knocked on his door, and knocking on the door saved her life because she had a wedding to go to that weekend, and she wouldn't have missed it for the world until, Dutch speak said, you need to get up to the QE now and have tests. And she was straight into hospital, I was it. She had like five weeks, six weeks in hospital before she was allowed out. And you know, thankfully, she's a, a good story. Yeah, and she's doing never so well again now. Well, that, that again, she she wouldn't have survived the weekend if she would have gone.
0: So, what year is this? When is when? What year is all this happening at the moment? Three years. No, what sorry? What year? Nineteen ninety. 1990... Oh, what for? Gemma? No, for you. Oh, for me. Sorry, I'm 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 two thousand and three. Okay, two thousand three. And what happened to Gemma was just three years ago. Yeah. Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So for me, 2003 was we didn't have the information that we've got now at the fingertips. It was. A,
0: what would you have asked then? You said earlier that you'd have you'd have asked some more questions. What type of things would you have wanted to have known at that point? To, to be honest, like you say, Charlie was is very frank. Charlie
1: and he told me it was black and white. Really, it, there was he said there's this wonder drug that's about to hit, hit the the country, but it's, it's still on a trial. There's only five, six players, places in the Midlands, and they've all been taken. But he said, You're young enough. And if we can find you a good enough match for a stem cell transplant, I think that's your best way forward. And as soon as he said that, that was me. I was focused on that. I didn't want to rely on a a, a trial, you know, and be on that. I wanted, I just wanted to attack it. I just wanted to get rid of what I had, if I had a chance. Well, like I say, it, it, he started giving me a percentage of survival rates and a uh, percentage of going through the transplant. He never did tell me till 10 years after the survival rates of a transplant. Cause a lot of people relapse even after that. Yeah. So, and he's, he's, he's doing a lot of work into that now at the moment, uh, with Anthony Nolan. Uh, but. You, you just look for positives, don't you? And I, But it's bizarre. I don't know what you did, Chris, because I know you went slightly different route with the... the t- oh, tablets, yeah, yeah. I had this three-month period of being told, um, you need to get off all this interferon. You need to clear your body of that. We're going to give you a transplant. The sister was a match, not a great match, but they felt they could control it, and it was my best chance. Yeah. So I had three months of not doing anything. And that three months, was, when I look back, was the best three months of, of my life. Forget about sport and all that sort of thing. Really? Me and my wife just made a, you know, you see, bucket list. And like I say, the girls were still young. We we wanted to go to Paris. We wanted to do this. We wanted to do that. And one of the best memories was going to Cornwall. Never been to Cornwall. People were saying, oh, best place ever. Because at the time of the year, it was October time. By now, um, we're on a beach by ourselves and just one of the best memories ever, watching the two little girls run on the beach with no footprints or anything, just watching them run. And they they were oblivious to what was going on. They actually saw it on local news. Uh, a former England Wolves player, a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. And that word cancer, a 10-year-old knows what cancer is. Yeah. And I said, Oh no, it's not. He says, I've just got something wrong with my blood. And then, you know, that was it. She was off playing with her sister again. So that that was that was it. So everything was laid out for me. I just felt I felt I don't know. I felt really sort of in a great uh, place where I was fortunate and this is where I always look back. I was lucky, I had a great family around me. And I had money from saved up from football. So I had that safeguard but I also had insurances and I got everything in place. If everything went wrong in January, that was coming up with a transplant. I knew they were well looked after. And that that was it for me. That was enough. And if it ended in January, then I was quite a happy man with what we'd done in that three months leading up to it. Do you think that mental state helped you get through what was to come? I do. I think because it, I mentioned football about injuries and everything, going through the transplant, and being told bluntly what it was like and being told very black and white, you're going to have this, you're going to have that, and then you're told about you're going to have full-body radiation eight times over the four days. Side effects of this, you're probably going to get cancer when you're older. And you're going, what are you? It's like being slapped around the face and being slapped again and just, oh, you end up wanting to say, oh, shit, really, just get on with it. So, you, you take it all on board, and then you just, like I say, it's like this conveyor belt where you just put your life in the hands of, of these skilled people. And I just felt comfortable in this bubble. When I got in the isolation room from a transplant in preparation, I had two nurses, maybe three nurses, Helen, Irish girl, who was absolutely nutty, absolutely crazy and uh looked at to bits and and charlie and they were the only people and julie my wife who came into the room but well, that was my it was my comfort blanket and i just felt really safe there even though they were doing the worst to me
0: yeah
1: they were you know giving this radiotherapy really and charlie said that because i was still i was 38 i was still young enough and for him to really sort of go heavy with the radio radiotherapy and chemo before to get me prepared um, I felt there was one night I felt oh, uh, that's it that's enough I've been sick all day no and it's hard to describe to people how sick somebody can be but I was just I couldn't stop being sick it was just like there was the nursing they like a conveyor belt with trains like that, you know and it's, it's and you end up sort of laughing with these people because you. Because they're going through it
0: with you and you just, you don't know where to cry, laugh or whatever, but you get through it. Okay, so this was all in Birmingham happening at the moment in Charlie's clinic that you were having all this treatment?
1: Yeah, I mean, he just built, I think, about 12 rooms, which were post, supposed to be the, the the latest sort of technology, there best air conditioning to keep the air fresh and everything like that. And that's the reason why we delayed it. There was two reasons actually. One, I could have Christmas with the, the family. And then January is what that's when these new rooms were ready for for going into. So I was felt like I was going somewhere. I was if hey, I'm going to get the best treatment, this is the place. Well, they didn't tell me there was no TV in there because the electrics weren't finished. They were rushing everything for it. So five weeks in isolation, even though three weeks of that, you're in a complete stupor from everything that's going on. Two weeks, you're just bored solid. So, yeah, I have nothing to do because... Mobile phones were rubbish back then. Nokia this and Nokia that. Yeah, no iPads or anything. Nothing like that to play with, nah, nah. It was, yeah, it
0: was So at what point did your sister become involved when, what was the process that involved her? <laughs> my, my sister got involved in probably late
1: October. She had a test and when it came back, she was good enough. I didn't know at the time this became a big issue where she actually, I've, I've not actually spoke to her about it because it, I don't think she'll listen to this. <laughs> okay. She actually um, she rang Charlie up saying, I'm not sure I can do this. And so she did ring me up once crying, saying that I'm going to kill you. It's going to be my fault if this doesn't work. I said, oh, don't be daft. You're the one that's giving me a chance. But I said, listen, if you don't want to do it, tell me. I can go on and register and then see. Because Charlie's got everything under control now. I've got time. Um, but she I think she thought about it. But she, I didn't know. But I do know now that she um had real, real problems mentally. She was time off work. She was a nurse. So she knew all the side effects and all what was gonna go ahead and what was in, in front. And she just didn't literally that like, she didn't want to play a part in killing me. And but well, ever since then, I've been paying back every single day. It actually saved my life. So it's
0: great just, Christmas presents, I'd oh, imagine. I, and, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. I've got an issue. I need to Yeah, yeah. But
0: there is a knock-on effect here, isn't there? That I think sometimes it's all very well you coping with it because it's your bubble and you can get your head right, but the knock-on effect with friends, family, donors who are family—you know, it's, it's,
1: it's like it's like of- anything, Chris. I, I think. You, you'll be exactly the same. It's rather me going through it yes. than anybody else. But the, the people around you are the ones that are suffering maybe more because you, you could just, you're you've focused on one thing. One thing alone is just getting better. Your, your immediate family, my wife Julie had the issues of bringing up two girls at the same time as well as you know me saying, oh, don't go home yet, just sit down a bit longer. So... It was only after that I came out of isolation and got home. I was still bed bound, but there was a knock on the door and Julie was busy with the girl. So I went downstairs and there was two policemen at the door. And they said to me, "Um, you own such a car, blah, 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 registration. I go, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, it's been seen driving away from a petrol station without paying for the petrol. I've gone well. I've not been in the car today, um, and obviously I was like skin and bone. You know,
0: you you look like everybody who's gone through that looks the same. Yeah. You look like a typical cancer. There patient. is the famous photo of you lying in the beds with no hair and stuff. Was that around about that yeah, time?
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was it was a it was a guy that the first day I was diagnosed and uh, the first day I was in the hospital uh, that I looked across and I saw this guy who looked really poor. He was green. And Charlie said, you should go and speak to him. Adrian, his name was. And he just had a transplant and he had CML. So I, I knew I was going to look like him one day. So I was looking like him this day. I answered the door. Okay. So they, they, the policeman looked a little bit shocked anyway, I'm sure. But I shouted up to Julie, have you been in the car? And she was going, no, I haven't. No, no, no. And then I I, I could hear her go, oh. And she came downstairs and then said, I did And she said, did I not pay? And she said, I've been there. She couldn't even remember being there. She'd done the shopping and filled the car up after. And she, we laughed about it until I shut the door and she absolutely broke down. And I think that was the first time she'd shown any sort of emotion. She was just, you know, deadpan, looking after me and making sure everything was fine with me. But... It, and that was the point where I realized that she was you know going through it just as much, if not more of me, and yeah, yeah you you do, and it's all right saying it's I'd rather be going through it, and all that sort of thing, but um that made me real- realize that people do suffer a lot more because they feel helpless, some of them yeah you know, they they just feel like and and you're a lot of your friends. And, see, I was different as well. I was very fortunate. Football is just a sick sense of humour. So they, I'd had phone calls off mates, and they'd say exactly what they were thinking, you know. But people don't know. People who were away from football didn't know how to approach me, and so they didn't. Some didn't even get in touch until I was starting to get better, because they didn't know what to say. But you know, football humour is dark, and you know, people saying that kind uh, of you've got size eight feet on you? you can have your football boots because you won't be using them again you know and all that sort of thing it's just your clothes shops have you got your black suits because you know your funeral's going to be in a couple of, it's just sick but it, it, it's it, a coping it, mechanism isn't it it is and what is
0: it, it is a humour that uh, it's a humour nurses are the same I had I had friends that my relationship fundamentally changed with them when I was diagnosed even to this point now mm. so that's happened to you what would you say to those people now How you know if if someone's diagnosed close to them, how do they deal with it? I, I think
1: what I would recommend is ask the questions that you want to ask. Don't, you know, if you don't be scared of asking something that you think is stupid. Because I think people are scared of asking the obvious. Mm-hmm. There are no stupid questions with this, are there? And one thing that irritates me more than anything else, oh, you'll be okay. Uh, you know, as, as they leave you. Because you walk away and you go, Listen, I don't know if I'm going to be okay. How do you know? You know, so it's, I think it's a case of just being honest and just being, even if you go up and say, Listen, I don't know how I'm going to torture you. I don't know what, just be frank and say that. And then you can open up a dialogue between yourselves and you find yourself, you, you open up, like, you know, the the patient's friends and family open up to, to helping more by doing that, rather than staying staying away and keeping everything away from
0: from the friend. So So from the point that you're admitted into hospital in the January to when you're when you're home, what time span is that? How long was that? I was like? five weeks. Okay. And then you're back home. Back home, but then I was in probably in bed
1: for another say about four weeks, or okay. feeling cold. And then Steadily, just slowly, just start feeling... No, I wouldn't say it was normal for quite a while after. You know, it's... that uh, it, it, Your taste buds are, are change. Uh, and somebody give me some great advice before the transplant. Don't take anything into that room that you really like and you, you can't do without. Because the smells and the tastes and everything that you go through through that, that five-week period... Even the telephone ring takes you back to that point. Music. There's there's certain songs that come on
0: the, the radio, I have to switch off, even though it made me feel sick. Really bizarre. Crikey. So that is that just a coping, again, another coping mechanism of moving through life and just dealing with those? Or are you protecting yourself at the time of the thing it's it's a protection it's,
1: it's, it's listening listening to people who
0: have experience who have been through it and then
1: just taking on board I'm not and it is a case that I used Dove non scented uh, body wash you can't have
0: that. it smells of something now that I can't wow I can't bath around me okay and is that something you share with other patients as well do they have that similar experience of I, I yeah.
1: And really? that's what I'm saying is I got that from the experience of a patient who's been right. through it.
0: Okay. And
1: yeah, hopefully. And again, I think things are obviously getting better. You know, there's a there's a lovely guy who's who's just been through he had CML. The the drugs that weren't working with him, so he had to have a transplant. He had a transplant. But he was forty eight, Mark, and if he was 2003, he wouldn't have that chance of a, a stem cell transplant. He's too old. He did a bike ride before he had a transplant on the September, I think, September. And then he did a bike ride a year after, in between, he had a transplant. It's Amazing. Gosh, you know man. his his recovery was amazing uh, it, uh, you know it's is a skill and it's, it's uh, obviously technology's improved but mentally he was strong as well and I think if you get everything in line then you've got a great chance
0: of getting to this so you're coming out the other side of this now you're at home you've been in bed for several weeks mm. uh, when, when do you start getting up and moving around and dealing with any consequences of well, I used to get
1: up on? just to go to the hospital to I think it was every day at first. And that was, again, my comfort blanket was going and seeing patients. I was sat next to listening to, are they getting on? Are they recovering? And it was people who I sat next to that, who sadly didn't make it, that started me asking questions of Charlie. Right, I used to play football. I've got some sort of profile. Probably a couple of months after, I started asking, what can I do? And he says, "Listen, get fit yourself first before we start." And that's when I started asking silly questions like, "What, what can I do to get fit?" Little did he know, I started getting out on a bike, doing things. And the guys who were friends of mine and better friends now, and they were about then were media people, and they started. I read this book of this cancer survivor, Lance Armstrong, and he was a cancer survivor to me. Then he had a great story about. Being a sports person and used, he asked questions about getting the best treatment so he could uh, ride again. And I just found it inspirational, like so many people did. And it's it's a shame that it's been tarnished his his name with with the world of cycling, really, but with what the choices that he took. But
0: he's still a cancer survivor.
1: The the point is is that he
0: still got through a terrible point in his life. And,
1: and that's how I look at him now. Yes. You know, I've, I've met Lance a few times now and I've won the Helen Rawlinson World on the back of what we did for my first challenge. I took on the Tour de France. I, I was diagnosed 2003 in, in July. I went into remission in January, 2005. i took on the challenge of doing the tour in two thousand and five six months after six six seven months after of doing the tour two days ahead of the professionals with Lance Armstrong winning his final yellow jersey of his career and then won the Helen Rollinson award on the back of that, and he presented the award to me on the BBC so it just it just felt like I was I was never going to be a Lance Armstrong raising. The, the amount of money he did, Well, I felt I could raise awareness for people with blood cancer with my story, and and, and I knew because I was trying to find positives, and there weren't that many positives back in two thousand and three when I was diagnosed. I was on a, actually on a cancer chat, um, on the laptop, just typing away, asking questions of on on I forget what the the onco chat or something. It was called. okay, yeah. And it was American people and British people were coming into this. And I felt great comfort in actually talking to people. And and with that, when you're on such a platform, you have to listen to sad stories as well. And that, that becomes a fact of life that people don't make it. And I, I just took positives on anywhere I could, really. And I think... And this is the the thing. Now we've got great opportunities now of having more information out there, and positive information, and better information. That's going to help people get through what we went through back in so many years ago. Yeah,
0: but I agree.
1: I think everything is getting better, and it should be so much more positive about it. And what we we should endeavour
0: to make it better. For, for patients who are being diagnosed now, we're certainly in a better position to be able to help them for sure. And you, you kind of wonder what it will be like in 10 years' time as well. So, well, yeah,
1: I, th- I think uh, what we've seen over the last 15 years, the acceleration in, in the way people are treated. And, like, say, Mark, you would have been told to go home and probably we've done enough. You know, you're 46, 47 now, we we can't put you through the treatment because it was too harsh back then. But well, now they've found ways of doing a transplant which isn't as aggressive and. And with better uh, support and better drugs better 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 everything we people are surviving this
0: even more so um, and we'll touch upon that in a minute at what things are like now and what you're doing at this moment in time but from from two thousand and three when did you do the tour for the first time? it was 2000, obviously two thousand and five two thousand so in, in two two years two and a half years. Yeah. You've gone from diagnosis to um, doing the tour. Do you realise how rubbish that makes um, <laughs> other CML patients look? <laughs> like, I mean, that's an incredible achievement to, to go through all well, of that.
1: I, How'd I, you I, do that? I, no, I was doing it for the reason because I knew people I, I sat next to would have loved the opportunity of of doing it, and I just felt I, I felt I had one opportunity. To, to raise awareness and raise money, because uh, radio five were ringing me every day, and again social network wasn't out there at the time, two thousand and five. There wasn't a case of tweeting something or getting the message out there. So radio five were brilliant. And they were actually allowing me to have a rest to, to do interviews every day to say what we're up to and where where we're getting to. And but when we got back, I felt. It was a start rather than me finishing something because all of a sudden this awareness was building up. Yeah. So I went back to Charlie. Right, Charlie, what's next? What what really needs to be done? Because we've raised, we've raised about a quarter million
0: pounds first time round. So as you're cycling up up these hills and and mountains and things like that, that that's what's in, that's what's driving you. You 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 know the the conversations that you've had with other patients, mm. and you you clearly know inside you that there is a mission here. Did that? Did that? Yeah, is it a calling for call? you. Yes. It is,
1: and I always relate to one day, stage eighteen of this tour. It was up on the highest mountains in the uh, in it's called the Galibier in the Alps, and it was uh, three big climbs before this, and it was beautiful at the bottom. It was twenty eight degrees, gorgeous blue skies. We started going on these climbs. There was four guys with us, like I mentioned before, but four journalists, all very sporty, all very committed to sport and me. But then we decided on mountains, Go, you had to go at your own speed. So one by one, they started going off in front of me. I was going up these climbs, up these corners. We couldn't actually see the mountain until we turned right. And I was always, I didn't feel fatigued. we were probably 120 miles into this ride, this stage. Like I say, it was stage 18 where it was really, really tough anyway. And I was just going about to, enough, only a few miles an hour to, quick enough to stay upright. I had the support vehicle right behind me. And my last mate, Neil Ashton, who tried to stay with me going so slow, just said, listen, I've got, I'll meet you at the top. You've got a couple more miles to go. And by this time, I was, I wanted to be by myself. I had the sport car behind me, which I knew was there anyway. But by this time, I was by myself. I, it was starting to get cloudy. The rain started to come down. We got near the top. It's so high, it started to snow. It was just, it was minus three at the top. And I was in tears. But what was keeping me going was there was a guy called Mark. It's a girl called Claire, and it was these people that sadly passed away that uh, just were with me. It just I felt, if I can't do this, you know, and I was weak as anything. Well, as we got to the top, Neil was there uh, cowering behind a rock <laughs> waiting for me, and we just set off over the top. And as I went over the top, I went, ah, stopped, because it was that cold, I, w- I was going to kill myself. I couldn't feel anything. I was emotionally drained. I was physically drained. So I jumped in the support vehicle and all the guys took their clothes off. So I looked like a Michelin man. I had all their clothes on, I had socks on my hands. And we started going down this descent, which was, again, about 20 miles long. We got halfway down, sun came out. It was getting bright blue skies. And I had this one of these moments where you think, my I've just done something there that is like my old like the old life had gone and this new chapter, in this new stage in my life is is about to start. And then I, there was a, a girl just stopped, waved us down. And um we only had about ten miles to go, but it was all downhill, so I was quite happy to stop. <laughs> And uh, she said, "Oh, I've been waiting for ages. I saw your team go through a couple of hours ago, uh, the, the lead car." And I said, "Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been struggling up that bloody thing, but there." And she was a haematology nurse, and she just said, I, "I moved here and I've been a nurse for many, many years, and what you're doing is is amazing." I just thought, "Oh, man, this is great." Just little <sighs> reminders like that. I just. Must be the best bits. Yeah, when when we got back, but like I say, when I got back, I, I felt a little bit empty because I got all this credit. So, and I knew that so many people would love this opportunity. I, I did it again in 2007 with seven cancer cancer survivors, and we made a little documentary, and it was great fun again. We raised money, but the awareness was still building up. Yeah, and that, that was it. And the bike has since then been a, a part of, uh, pardon the pun, a vehicle of raising awareness and bringing people together because you can bring really healthy people, really fit people, alongside people who've just been through treatment on a bike and people who just want to help. And you say to them, get on a bike, let's just let's have a bit of fun, let's go and have a ride and we'll support each other. And that, that's... It's like any anything where there's a team involved. you find you've got leaders and you've got stronger people, you've got weaker people, and if you, you do it together, you get to the end and you feel the benefits of that.
0: Yeah. I know your story, and we've talked about things like this, but every time I hear you talk about that, it just blows me away. And I just think it's – I just have to say it's just so inspiring hearing that stuff. Um, you're bloody amazing. No, really. but, it, but it's it's – you know,
1: it's – there's still things to do, and while there's still things to do, you feel like you've not done anything. No. So You've done but, more than most, mate. Yeah, but there's, there's an end game to this as well. And the end game is like eradicated blood cancer and this isn't me talking, this is scientists and this is uh professors out there that's saying this potentially can be rid of in the next ten, fifteen, twenty years. Now the last fifteen years we've we've seen Chronic myelar leukemia not be the killer it was back in 2003 for sure. Yep. And now we've got uh, uh, these cupboards full of knowledge that have just been allowed to open up to benefit patients now yep. in various blood cancers. And I think the understanding is there now. And it's just finding the, the right way to get it to patients ethically, and you've got the skill set to deliver it properly. And then you find that patients will benefit from this so much quicker. And that's, that's why I've been heavily involved in, in funding and Charlie's vision of having this program where it brings in a population that's big enough to do clinical trials at a rate quicker than anywhere else in the world. And all of a sudden the UK becomes an attraction for big pharmaceutical companies to invest their latest products. And that's what we've found over the last 15 years. We've proven that this works. We've leveraged over two hundred and fifty million million worth of free drugs into this infrastructure.
0: But there's still things to be found out. This is is the work that you're doing with Cure Leukaemia, isn't it? Well,
1: Cure Leukaemia set up probably the same time I was diagnosed. Little did I know, but then I became a patron of pretty quickly because Charlie obviously he was the one who set it up. Well, Charlie knew that King wasn't big enough to do the work that he, he wanted to do, but it, it was a proving ground. So with Birmingham, he set up satellite hospitals around Stoke, Coventry, Worcester, um, enough to give him a, a population of about I think it was about was it twenty million, and very quickly he was. Yeah, pharmaceutical company's giving him 35 million pounds worth of free drugs. This was only after about two or three years, because he was seeing proving that he could fast track their products through. Hey, yes, it's a, a benefit to patients, Oh, no, it's not. So for them, it's saving money and saving time and then potential answers of but at the same time, patients are getting our opportunity of having rather means told to go home. You've got right, we've got this, this drug that could benefit you. So they get on a trial. That was really the way it started and it's become obviously more polished and it's it's now it's the hub is in Birmingham. You've got a number of centres all around the country who are proven to be similar skill sets, collect all the data, comes back to the hub, and all the, the new drugs that come into this, then they prove quickly what the next opportunity could be for patients and this is where we're seeing the survival rates uh, uh just improving so quickly blood cancer is leading especially in the uk is leading the fight against cancer you know it's proving that um we are the leaders in,
0: in well, we're living proof of that as well of course. we are
1: living proof and we know many more people that are yes.
0: um, but there's still too many that aren't and um there's something nice when we get together because you're the transplant side of things, and I'm the, the sort of drug side of things. Well, and we're both, you know, we're both relatively fit and healthy. Yeah, here,
1: and probably. and you're a great advocate, and the work that you do is um, recognised and rightfully so, um, because patients do need a voice. Uh, patients have been ignored for a long time. Used to get, I used to know in the world of football, I used to go and sit next to her, mainly surgeons with dicky balls. And he didn't know wonder know about your career. He just wanted to operate you, and they make their six, ten thousand pounds from doing that operation. And that was it. That's you didn't have a relationship. What we know and what we've been through, you have a relationship with your doctor because they they really want to make a difference. And so, patients have have got to recognise they've got a big part to play in this because we're getting to a part now that you you've. like i said before you you should start asking more questions of what
0: you should be entitled to and we're trying to furnish people with knowledge as well like information booklets and the old stuff that we used to look at on the internet that was all out of date and horrible brutal stuff yeah. isn't that anymore there's there's sort of verified knowledge bases um that can be found on the internet that you know you just think that's only going to help people and that's patient power ultimately
1: it is it is and i think um if you see a new story, it's normally led by a patient. Yeah. Science is see, so boring sometimes. You know, you hear a story come down, you know it's not going to benefit anybody for the next 20 or 30 years. And you think, why is this even being recognised? Because it's, it's you need something that's going to have an impact now on people. And I think um, what what's happening in the world of blood cancer at the moment is very, very exciting. And I think what we don't want to do is take the foot off the accelerator pedal, because I know that the next patient that comes along who's diagnosed today might not have the opportunity to say, if we don't carry on pushing. Yeah, and that's because, fundamentally wrong. And, there. and uh, this is what I always go back to this girl, Claire, lovely girl, 20, 22. Uh, uh, education was cut short because of her treatment and she couldn't get to university. Really bright girl. and. She just got into remission when I just come back off one of the, the first tour and she was saying, oh, I'm ready to go back to university. And and I want to help you. You know, obviously, I've got some profile in fundraising. And I want to help you do this, do that. And I thought, right, brilliant. And then but then she is in my driving force now because about three weeks later, she relapsed. Her family called me and said she's in hospital now. She wants to see you. I went to see her from this Bright young thing, ready for life. She was couldn't see. Her eyes were shut. All the, the, the leukemia that she had a form that she had, had just come back, and it's ravaged, her, really sort of attacked her. Her eyes were shut, but she was still positive. She um, Charlie told me that she had probably only had a couple of months to live at best. But she a few months beyond that, it was her best friend's wedding, yeah. and she was. May uh what the prize honour, is it called? whatever and um she was determined to get there, and she got there, she made it, she made a wedding and she she lasted a couple more months after that, but it's a her drive and her desire is is something I can't keep and i am sure you're the same you hear too many negative stories, you can't keep pulling on now the them, because you you'd be a, depressive wreck you'd be yourself but when I start getting down on myself I start thinking this is too hard this I'm having to knock on another door to try and ask for support I think of Claire Claire would rather be knocking on the door riding up a mountain doing something stupid you know doing something that seems mundane just just to be here and I think that's where I put myself I I listen to
0: to what Claire would do and then get on with it that's a good life lesson. And and how about your your health at the moment? How are you? It, how has the transplant affected you? Years later, you.
1: you my only issue,
0: if I, I've had it, and it was my fault.
1: Um, <laughs> psychosporin is a drug that stops you rejecting the, the, the new stems, stem cells, um, assisted stem cells from fighting my body for a time, so it can take on its new immune system. And it was horrible. It's like taking horse tablets who eat massive, but they smelt. And you had to oh. unpeel them and take them twice a day. And I remember having a meeting with Charlie. He said, right, you've got to a point now we need to start taping you off this psychosplorin. I went, oof. I said, well, I stopped them a couple of months ago. He said, you idiot. And then he said, this is going to cause you issues." issue. So, yeah, I had a bit of graph versus horse, and which had, the only thing I have now is i can't produce tears mm. so it's, it's a but upset. you're not
0: using the drops anymore because you
1: used to use I am, drops well, I've, like I said I've been here on the scooter and I do it's bizarre on a pedal bike or on a scooter it, it, it somehow puts moisture in my eyes so I don't have to use them as much <laughs> I so um, yeah it's uh, so that's the only downside I've got
0: Then you are to blame for that So and it's yeah. me to blame yeah, for that yeah, yeah. so it's, yeah, I
1: can't sue anybody <laughs>
0: Um what's a great piece of advice for someone who's just been diagnosed what would you say to them if you were if you were stood in front of them now um i would say it's very very difficult to take everything in
1: um go and listen to all the advice you get from your your first point of call which is going to be your doctor and record what he's saying That's what I would have done if I had the opportunity to do that again, so I didn't have to keep asking questions over and over again. But then just uh, being in a positive frame of mind, I think, helps so much. And surround yourself with things that are positive, I think, it's a dark place and you've got to recognise. I I think, like I mentioned before, when you're diagnosed, we've all got the same story. Blood cancer in particular is something that hits you out of the blue. It's not something that you, you feel that um, you've got before you're actually diagnosed with it. And sometimes it might be a knee injury, like Graham Silk, who's been a great advocate uh, of campaigning to mm. to bring new signs to benefit patients. He's, he's on CLEVEX still. Um I've lost track where I'm going with. Uh, he
0: had an injury. Yeah, he had an yeah, injury.
1: Sorry, he had an injury. He was doing the Venice Marathon mm-hmm. and he just couldn't finish it. He had to walk. So he had a uh, went to the GP and that saved his life, more or less. Going to that GP he recognised straight away that he needed a blood test. So yeah, it's and that's what I'm saying from experience is that people have got a very similar story. So listen to them stories. You're not by yourself people have been through it before and come out of it positively. Listen to them and just take on board what they say, take on board what everybody says and just be positive.
0: And own it. I think
1: that's a big thing, Chris, isn't it? Yeah, I think getting control
0: of... and taking charge of it is, yeah. um you, yeah. you feel the benefits of that for sure. Yeah, we're lucky that we're surrounded by good charities like Bloodwise and Leukemia Care, Cure Leukemia, Anthony Nolan. There are some great people out there and, and the use of social media, properly, proper use of social media, I think can help you surround yourself with really, really good people. I, I, think, I think you're right. I think the charities that are involved with blood cancers are,
1: are up there with the best. And I think um, it's not much replication. You know, and I think that's where everybody has to identify what, where we can have our strengths and benefit patients as quickly as
0: possible. That's what we should all be focused on. Yeah, agreed on that. So, what's next for you? What's the, <laughs> what's the next? <laughs> Any more challenges coming up? Or well,
1: everything. You know, anniversaries keep popping up, and I think next year we, we've got a few challenges this year. Um, And we've got a big announcement at CURE Leukaemia uh, about the way the charity is going to go in the next 10 years. Uh, We're going to be more involved with the the Trials Network, which, like I mentioned, was a proving ground, Charlie's work in the Birmingham. But we're going to go more on a a national scale very soon. That'll be announced next month. Um, But on the back of that, then I've got to sort of start revving up the so so meet for 2020 it's 2020 which will be 15 years since I, I did the bike challenge but more importantly 15 years since i went into remission. so we've got a 15 year backstory of where what we've done what we've achieved and all the people that we've met all the people that have made such a difference great but What's more exciting? What's ahead? So we're looking at 15 years ahead, seeing that we could eradicate blood cancer if everything fell in place. Hopefully, when we come 15 years from now, people are just yeah, you've got blood cancer, but it's not a problem anymore. Just get started.
0: Yep. Okay. And how much have you raised to point to this point roughly? Have you got an idea in your head how much you're into? No. no, people always try and put a number on it, but. You've been involved in tens of millions of pounds of campaigning, though, haven't you? I mean, that's the
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but I'd, honestly, I'd, like I say, I feel like I've not done anything yet. Until it's been done, I don't feel like we've achieved. It's like having a game of football. You until that final whistle goes, yeah. Know.
0: That's the sportsman in you. You're competitive. Yeah. You know, you want to win this. So. Yeah, and and I just want to wish you all the best of luck. And you know full well that. You've got my number if you need anything apart from riding at mountains. We've had that discussion before. <laughs> you know, you tried to guilt me into this. You said, oh, there's this 70-year-old guy and he rides at mountains with me. Come on, Chris. You know come
1: what? And, come that 70-year-old guy is still going. He's a great friend and he does London Paris. it would be his 11th year this year. He's doing it with me in September. So, yeah, I'm still going to shame you. You should join us in
0: September. I'd love to, yeah. 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 Oh, you, I could use all the same excuses, but I've got nowhere to go with this, really. Yeah,
1: just say no. That's what I found as well in life lessons. That when you've been through something like this, just I used to sort of be one of these characters who go, "Yeah, maybe," but now I go, "Yes, or no." Rather than you know, that's what if I can do
0: something, yes, I'll be delighted. But if I can't, then yeah, yeah. Watching the marathon this year was the first year that I thought to myself, "Do you know what?" Because I'm 44 now and I thought, do you know, before I'm 50, I wouldn't mind going for that. It is definitely, uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> There's people <laughs> writing <laughs> that down. Somebody's oh, just down just down. somebody's <laughs> put a form
1: in front of you. Yeah, be- no, but it's, it is a, a tick box, definitely. Yeah, There are certain things in life you should sort of do at least once. I'd love to. The London Marathon is a great experience. Yeah. I did it in 2007 with Julie and my wife. And then we did New York the same year. Wow. Stupidly. We've got like, hate running. And um she beat me in New York, but we went <laughs> that's uh, the competitive spirit in her. She thought, right, she's leaving me. But no, it London it was amazing. Is if I uh, recommend any event, London Marathon is one of them because you just get tied up with every charities are great and and when they all come together you can see on the back of people, names, and reasons why they're doing it. And it is just a fantastic event. And I think, yeah, do it, do it for your charity. And you, you feel like you've done something amazing when you get to the end. Yeah. Painful. Well, yeah, it will be painful. Yeah,
0: thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank I can't you. even begin to tell you how inspiring, uplifting, how much great information you've given out there. It's just going to be a massive help. Everything that you do is for patients. And from a patient perspective, just wanted to say thanks. You're just brilliant. Oh, that's very kind of you.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukaemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukaemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline 08088
0: 444. See you next month.